Hello fellow lucky Martians. Welcome to episode number three of the Deep Dive Autobiography, I Am a Particularly Lucky Martian by Jay Crandall. If you're like me and you love word games, you'll love Don't End a Word. Based on a deceptively simple two-player word game I played in the car with my parents growing up, it is now available. In fourth grade, my parents decided to enroll me in a program at NIH, the National Institute of Health. It aimed to study the effects of Ritalin and other stimulants on gifted children with ADHD. I was placed in a tiny classroom with a few other students and given variable amounts of different stimulants. I finally learned cursive, how to properly hold a pencil, was doing 12th grade level vocabulary books in high school physics, and finally learned the rote memorization of times tables and the months of the year. They also had me wear a belt that measured my activity level, and later learned that I was an outlier, both the highest IQ and the most hyperactive student in the study. I have heard that raising a gifted child is like raising two children, and they also say that raising a hyperactive child is like that too. By that logic, I was an equivalent amount of work as four children. Pair that with my parents' choice for a dog, and you can imagine why I'm an only child. I also got a gerbil, Comet, whose headstone I kept for some reason. In retrospect, I should have named him Asteroid. Fifth grade brought me back into Northern Virginia's best-in-the-country public school system to our local community elementary at Fairfax County's Canterbury Woods. Go Cougars! America enjoyed peace and prosperity and was actually running a surplus under Clinton. But the Republicans insisted on instituting government shutdowns over budget disagreements. I was in a GT class taught by Mrs. Campbell, my favorite and most influential teacher. She was heavily into medieval reenactment. We put on Macbeth. I still remember some of my lines. I was an apparition. Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. Beware the Thane of Fife. I also created one of Hammurabi's tablets by wrapping a styrofoam rectangle in Sculpey. The original sculptor I was copying wanted to have him taking a big step, but had created his elaborate robes already. As a result, in taking the step, he is exposing his exposed leg, much like a seductress in a slit dress. We also dressed up as Egyptian gods and created elaborate costumes. I chose to be the ibis-headed Thoth, the god of the moon, magic, and writing. To approximate his look, I inverted and cut in half a milk carton and added a beak, eyes, and netting to obscure my face. I was the leper at a renaissance fair we put on and sewed our own tunics for. We also were tasked with painting a medieval self-portrait, and I really had no idea what sort of stuff they would wear. The real-life tunic I created was a drab, dour-muddy brown affair. But the one I painted ended up looking like a poofy, arm-pastel BDSM enthusiast. That's what I imagined the upper-crust fancy types like to wear. I also found online plans for a chair-sized trebuchet called the Cheese Chucker and built a further scaled-down replica. I enjoyed bike rides to the Akotink and joiner clubs in baseball, soccer, fencing, and sword and shield combat. My dad took me to computer show and sale events. Installed floppy disk multi-packs of games like Tank Wars takes me to computer show and sale events. I played them with Steve on our 50k dial-up modems and huddled two to a single computer for games of Liero. One of the benefits of living in the DC area, and another thing I was lucky in, is the incredible free public museums. I have memories of visiting the Smithsonian with my parents. We invited my friend Fernando, 
a lanky, smart, awkward, and funny GT classmate with a similar sense of humor and casually eating the oranges growing in the botanical garden, much to my parents' ire. I've always imagined an armed troop of Smithsonian guards arresting us, saying, those are the president's oranges, put them down. He would join Steve and I in biking along the wooded paths to the local lake and renting canoes. We would have sleeping bag slumber parties with sofa cushion forts. I skated circles around our block on a 70s-era skateboard I got at a thrift store. Circles that would take me down the steepest road in the neighborhood, Chanticleer, while listening to tapes of WHFS transmissions, my first real exposure to electronic music. I was an active and outdoorsy child and was never introduced to any organized religion, and was free to develop my own zany personal religious beliefs, which I thankfully kept to myself. I was drawn to the primordial, and I decided that I would follow the wind spirit, and she would communicate to me through her avatar, the Mockingbird. On walks back from school, I would have conversations with the Mockingbirds, and believed in a magical sort of spellcraft. At around this time, I was invited to church and Sunday school with Steve after a sleepover. All the kids were assigned packages to read aloud. I read about Jesus and his disciples, a word I had not encountered before and was unfamiliar with the pronunciation. So I made the unfortunate decision to tell the group there about Jesus' disciples. I can't remember how they reacted, but I chuckle when I think about it. In high school, my religious beliefs shifted to a sort of Darwinian fundamentalism, with an avowed and angry anti-religiosity. But by college, my feelings had mellowed somewhat. I did have, and maintain, a pretty extreme valuation of all life and a strong sense of empathy. I would transport outside any bugs I came across indoors, but at the same time was also a staunch carnivore. You've been listening to episode number three of Jay Crandall's Deep Dive Autobiography, I Am a Particularly Lucky Martian. A while ago, I decided to turn a collection of t-shirt design ideas, which innocently and covertly depict vulgar phrases, into t-shirts. Things like a man with a giant wooden golf club, a deer with a massive rack, with horns, etc. To get one and snicker about it in the lunchroom, visit tinyurl.com slash secretlyvulgar. And check out tinyurl.com slash hiddenanimalsentences to see a list of hidden animal sentences I made with my mom in elementary school illustrated, with the animal from that sentence hidden in the picture. I was very lucky to be born right at the cusp of the technological revolution. I remember my first video game system, the Game Boy. I would lie in bed at night, huddled close to the lamp to see the screen. Soon after I purchased the Game Boy, I discovered the store Starland, where you could buy and sell video games and video game systems. I was a messy and disorganized child, but my parents required me to clean my room every week before I received my allowance, which I think was $7 a week, and at least I showered and ineffectually brushed my teeth regularly. At Starland, I bought Final Fantasy on a whim, and I was hooked on role-playing games. I remember shelling out around $60 for it, which was certainly a lot for a whim. I definitely got lucky there. One other title I can remember buying on a whim was QX, not nearly as engrossing. Soon enough, I would be trading in my old games and paying $60-odd for a Game Boy card of Final Fantasy III, and following the series onto the Super Nintendo. Starland was located in a nondescript strip mall, 
and I would constantly think we were near it and ask my parents if we were near Starland. Sophie was the exact opposite. While she loved to begin to shift as she began to recognize something about the neighborhood surrounding the vets, which she had an abject and powerful fear of, her joys would shift to absolute terror and she would begin to actually physically quake in fear. At least she wasn't like me, who thought that almost every nondescript shopping center we passed contained the store, and would ask my parents constantly if we were near Starland. I also remember lying on the floor leaning back against the sofa and operating the set-top channel changer as the remote had died and the battery was never replaced since my parents never watched TV. I began playing on a mud with our 56k baud dial-up internet. I still have a vivid memory of the dial-up modem sound. A mud, or multi-user domain, was a text-based digital world populated by numerous people, flying monsters, completing quests, and chatting. A fairly brutal hack-and-slash world, heavily on the PvP, player versus player. I bet I seemed a little childish to the other people there, but they were probably used to the immature nerdy types. My alias was Kyojitsu, as I had recently re read a book about ninjas. I read a book about mud coding, and I noticed that there were a series of quests that didn't require you to kill any monsters. Steve and I created a program that would do them in sequence and head to an obscure spot and wait. When another one of my robots entered the room, they would fight, and the victor would collect the experience of the vanquished. Experience was used to gain levels, and we used this system to gain a bunch of them, but the developers, or wizards as they were known, eventually caught on and stopped us. I decided to try to turn this into a good thing and applied to become an apprentice developer, or frob. Looking back, I wish I had kept my answers to their entry tests, because to my surprise, I was accepted. I was plunged into the world of LPMUD coding, a variant of C, and purchased a book and started creating worlds, monsters, and items with vigor. I remember creating a mech suit that you could pilot around and shoot out of. I did a presentation about MUDs for my 5th grade class, and even got my answers to some questions posed to players on the MUD published on their website. One of my creations on EOTL was my first attempt at artificial life, the Chibemo. Artificial life is the study of digital evolutionary processes. My creation's name stood for a character-based evolutionary model, and was designed to produce stronger creatures by the process of competitive evolution. What it actually did was reproduce with reckless abandon, overrun the game, and bring it to a screeching halt. They were forced to do a hard system restart, and I apologized profusely. Another creation of mine, which did work as intended, was a mech, which you could get inside, pilot around, and even launch weaponry from. I was addicted to the MUD, but something would soon cause me to all but forget the quaint black and white scrolling text of EOTL. Its name was EverQuest, and my addiction to this massively multiplayer 3D fantasy world soon completely overshadowed my addiction to EOTL. I happily overindulged as a gnomish enchanter for a few months, and soon thereafter forgot about both games. I recall launching an invasion party to Steve's Wood Elf Tree Fortress with a bunch of other gnomes, with the battle cry of, Fear the small, kill the tall. 
I did apply my interests in programming interests productively on a science project called Ecosystem Simulation Applying Evolutionary Computing to Increase Population Stability, which took me to the state-level science fair and won me almost $2,000. I had no idea how right I was in employing a multiverse. Sophie and the rest of our family would cram into our cherry red station wagon for numerous road trips to see Aunt Isabel, Uncle Larry in New Jersey, and Aunt Martha and Uncle Ken in Baltimore. During my fifth grade year, I read an article in Newsweek about a robot combat competition in San Francisco called Robot Wars, and I was enthralled and determined to enter. My father, grandfather, a neighbor named Peter, and I created a 25-pound battle robot that we dubbed C3 after the three generations of Crandall builders. Its drive motors were two Makita drill motors, and its main weapon was a spring-powered spike. There was also a picture from middle school where they assembled all the kids who wore a costume. We decided to use a spring-powered spike as the main weapon, and Peter came up with the idea of using the chain from a garage door to tension it. Constructed in Peter's Winchester, Virginia garage, shipped to California, and we went down for the tournament. C3, piloted by me, demolished our first opponent, Spunky Monkey, but lost to our second, the Wedge of Doom, who would go on to win the weight class. I piloted the robot, helped in its construction, and still have vivid memories of wandering the pit where all the robots and their teams were assembled. And in my bedroom, I kept our homebrew speed controller on the right, made from a drill trigger, C3's top. The motor for the spike retraction burnt out in our first fight when the contact triggers got jammed in an on position, so we had to go to a hardware store nearby and buy a drill replacement, which we strapped onto the back. The handle protruding from the shell in this picture of my grandfather and me that I found going through their albums. In our study, we have a framed t-shirt, along with a section of the armor and my pit pass. Years later, when my dad and I were cleaning out their house in Florida so she can move back up north, I found the notepad my grandfather was using at the time and the Sculpey C3 ornament I made for him. You've been listening to episode number three of Jay Crandall's Deep Dive Autobiography, I Am a Particularly Lucky Martian. To see the Google Docs version of this, with the extra bits that didn't quite work in the podcast form, visit bit.ly.com slash luckymartian3. And check out Don't End a Word in the Android App Store if you're like me and you love word games. Thanks to Shining Seconds for composing the theme music. You can access their webpage at shiningseconds.bandcamp.com. See you next episode, and stay lucky.